Seems like another lifetime ago now, but my first job out of college was as a sports writer. I covered college sports back in Arkansas, uh, mostly football. And uh, it may surprise you that uh, sports writers have to be bilingual. And it's not Spanish. Uh, the language we had to speak was coach. Because we soon discovered that football coaches, although they use English words, talk a pretty much a different language. I've gone back to my newsroom to transcribe notes from a uh, press conference, and I've come up with stuff like this. We got to execute today and play the full 60 minutes. I told my guys they got to give 110% and leave it all on the field and play till the whistle is blown. Somebody's got to get in there and make a play. These guys are who we thought they were, but we still got to take it one game at a time. The game will be won in the trenches, but we're still going to have to air it out and milk the clock. And some of you understood that, which is kind of scary, you know? And others of you who are not football fans, you're going to, to milk the clock. And, uh, well, that's, that's coach speak. We had to learn to translate that. Any group that lives and works together develops their own lingo. We do it in church. Here we call it church speak. And there are things that if you're new, if you've been around church forever, uh, this is second nature to you. But if you're new, you might, after church, you might hear a couple of people talking in the back and you hear something like this. I was fellowshipping with Susie when she really ministered to me by sharing her testimony about getting in the Word. I felt so convicted. I told her I needed to be shepherded, and she agreed to disciple me. And right then, she began to love on me. It was totally a God thing. <laughs> and if, if, you're, if you're a little new to the faith, you're going, huh? What does that mean? And if you've been around, you know. There's a phrase you hear a lot that uh, Rich has already mentioned at, uh, uh, at Christ Community, and it is the phrase redemptive relationships. So often we hear it, and sometimes we begin to use it without ever kind of entering into the good of what we mean by that. So we're going to spend some time this morning talking about redemptive relationships and exactly what that means. Well, let's begin with the word relationship. Relationship is an association between two people. Now, if you're married, you, you have a legal relationship with your spouse. You have a legal relationship with your, with your kids. But when people uh, begin to get to know each other, like dating or something like that, they'll, they'll put on their status on Facebook in a relationship which means that now that I'm, we're getting close, we're beginning to talk, we're beginning to share, we're getting to know them, we're spending time with them. And that's what a relationship really means. You may know a lot of people, you may talk to a lot of people, but how many people do you have a relationship with? We used to live in Grand Prairie. And... Uh, 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 we moved to Arlington like 35 years ago. But in Grand Prairie, I had a barber that's young people. That's what we used to call hairstylists. But I had a barber whose name was Frank. And one Saturday, I went in to get my hair cut. And Frank told me that he was retired. 
Um, and so I came home and told Debbie that I was going to find a new barber. And she said, oh, uh, so, so Frank's quitting. How, how old is he? I said, I don't know. And she said, well, what's he going to do now that he's retiring? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and she said, well, does he have any plans or does he plan to work anyplace else? I, I don't know. She said, is Frank married? I said, you guessed it. I don't know. Does Frank have any kids? I don't know. And she said, you've been going to Frank for five years now, every few weeks, and sitting with it. She said, what do you talk about? And I said, sports. <laughs> now, I, you know, Frank and I knew each other, but we didn't really have a, a relationship. This can fool you if you're in a, in a church like this where we know so many people and we have such good fellowship and such fun with people. And indeed, that kind of fellowship, knowing each other, enjoying being around each other, even what goes on in our, in our small groups where we do have a lot of fun and a lot of discussion, a lot of talking about what's going on in our lives, that is a great step toward redemptive relationships. But that's not it. Just, just because some of you, you know, when church is over, you leave and others of you, 30 minutes later, you're still here and talking with people. You know, I, I, uh, some people are real good at this. Some people are very, I mean, that's just second nature to them. They like doing that. Uh, frequently, I will call visitors up, and one of the questions I ask them is, is I tell them we're glad to have them and everything. I say, did you meet any of our people? And uh, often they say, uh, well, yeah, I did. In fact, there was one guy who was so super, super friendly. Uh, uh, I said, do you remember who that was? And they would say, I don't remember, but I think his name was Russian. <laughs> and I said, was his name Vlad? And they say, yeah, it was. He talked to me forever. It was great, you know. What I don't tell them, of course, is that, that uh, Vlad could have a conversation with a, with a tree in the forest for 20 minutes. <laughs> 30 if he could do it in Russian. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of, that is a first step toward having a relationship. But the kind of just talking with each other and knowing a lot of people, uh, that's, not, that's not a relationship. A relationship is when you know somebody well enough to be able to talk to them about anything, to open up, to be able to share what's going on in your life, uh, to ask them to pray for you, to really care what's happening in their lives. That's what a relationship is. Now, what about a redemptive relationship? Okay, now we've added an adjective to that noun. What, what is a redemptive relationship, and how does that differ from a relationship? Okay, redemption is, is a theological word, which means it's what Jesus did. He paid the ultimate price to redeem, to save us, to buy us out of the slave market of sin. So redemption is something that happened once on the cross, but redemption is something that continues on a daily basis in that he continues to work in our lives to make us 
in the image of himself. That's the goal of the Christian life, that he works to make us in that image. I love that old story. It's just probably not true, but somebody asked uh, Michelangelo how he sculpted David, and he said he took a chunk of marble and chipped away everything that didn't look like David. And that's exactly what God's doing in our lives. He is, his goal for your Christian life is to make you like his son, to make you think and act and talk like his son. How does he do that? I know. Here's how he does it. This is part of it right here. We go to Bible study and we go to home group and we learn the Bible. The classes, maybe we, uh, we read it ourselves, we memorize it, we meditate on it. All those things that we've been talking about because he is trying to build doctrine into our lives. So when he has built doctrine into our lives, when we understand things about salvation and about ourselves and about God and about sin and about all that God has done for us, well, does that mean we're like Jesus? No. He's got to do step two. Step one is he teaches you the truth. Step two is he brings you into situations where you have to apply it. It's one thing to know doctrine, but doctrine doesn't make you like Jesus. He will now bring things into your life so that you have to apply what you know. It, it really is... It's the same way that a third grade teacher teaches multiplication. I mean, she, she teaches what multiplication is, how it's a quicker form of addition. She teaches how multiplication works. She demonstrates multiplication. But you only have it once she starts giving you problems and you have to do it yourself. You have to take everything that she has taught and now apply it to this situation. That's what God is doing in our lives. So redemption happened on the cross, but it continues to happen on a daily basis as God works in our lives. Now, we call them redemptive relationships because we realize what God is doing in each other's lives. And we're willing to cooperate with that. That's all that means. If we know what he's doing, we're willing to cooperate, to work with him, to let him use us to work in us and through us in each other's lives. Now, this can be in several types of, it can be in a discipleship arrangement. Maybe, maybe you have asked someone in the church to actually disciple you, to help you to learn and help you to grow and, and to work with you. Uh, maybe to give you some assignments and check up on you. And all those, uh, discipleship is one thing. Mentorship is another. It's not discipleship, but it's where you have a friend who's a believer, who's an older believer and been in the faith longer, and that believer helps you. You talk to them, you call them up, you talk about what's going on in your life. You uh, ask questions. Uh, help them, they help you to apply what God's doing in your life. Other one is just a friendship. You're just friends with another believer. That can be just a friendship. It can be a relationship or it can be a redemptive relationship. How do you know whether it is or not? Well, okay, some questions. 
in your relationship and you're wondering, do I have just a relationship with this person? I know it's not just an acquaintanceship. Do I have a, do I, is this relationship a redemptive relationship? Question. Do you ever talk about spiritual matters? Do you ever pray together? Do you pray for that person? Is this somebody you can share problems with? Can share things you don't understand, things you don't know? Is this somebody you can share your failures and problems with? Both ways. You know, one thing about redemptive relationships, they're relationships between two sinners. And so I can tell you, if you're in a redemptive relationship with somebody, you will disappoint them. And they will disappoint you. And you will offend them. Probably not meaning to, but you may well, you probably will if you've known them long enough. You will offend them. And yet we realize that God is at work in this, in these relationships. And so the relationship itself takes work. We see each other's faults, and yet we realize, again, we know what God is doing. It's like, if you ask me, like, I'm not sure what God's doing in my life. Well, I can tell you. I already know. It's in the book. He already told us. His goal, ultimately, his goal for the past was to save you, save you for the penalty of sin. His goal for the present is to save you from the power of sin. And ultimately, he'll take us home. He'll say, take us from the, save us from the, even the presence of sin. And redemptive relationships can be a part of that. What does the word of God have to say about making redemptive relationships work? I'm glad you asked. Look at Colossians chapter 3. And let's, let's look at this for a few minutes. That's the passage that, uh, that Rich read earlier. This is about, really, is, and you'll notice that the passage does not mention the word redemptive relationship. That's because it's talking about the kind of environment where redemptive relationships can grow. Uh, a few years ago, I became a gardener. And, uh, and as such, I have learned a lot about uh, working in gardens and plants and things like that. One of the things I learned was about hardiness zones, something I never knew before I became a gardener. And that just means that there are, that as you, as you begin in the northern part of the United States and move south, uh, it gets hotter. That's it. The climate changes. You know, so there are several hardiness zones. It begins all the way with zone one and go. We are in zone eight here. Uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota is in zone four. And so let's say, for instance, let's say you are visiting a friend in Minneapolis. And this friend takes you out to a garden and shows you the garden and says, uh, what do you think of my garden? You say, that plant especially. I love that. I want that in my garden. And they say, well, I bought it in a nursery not far from here. Let's go. And so you go down to the nursery and you buy several, uh, uh, several of those plants. 
and you very carefully pack it and you bring it back to Texas. Uh, once you get here, you know that you know, this could be a challenge growing this plant. And so you, you read up on the plant and you read up about everything the plant likes and doesn't like. And you make sure that you plant it in the right kind of soil at just the right depth. And you make sure it's just the right distance from other plants. You make sure it's, it's watered perfectly, the kind of water it likes and the kind of uh, fertilizer it likes. And just to make sure, just to make sure, you hire a Ph.D. horticulturist to come in three times a week to look at your plant. And all you want him to do is just look at it and just say, is everything going okay? Any bugs? Do I need to change anything in the plant? Or is everything perfect? And, and that's all he does. Comes by every week, looks at the plant, helps you with them. Now, will that plant grow? No, it'll die. How do I know? Because zone four will grow that plant. Zone eight will kill that plant. It'll be great for the first couple of weeks, and then Texas summer will set in, and no matter what you do, that plant will die. Because there is a certain kind of environment that grows certain plants. Well, guess what? Redemptive relationships are like that. There are some church environments that will grow redemptive relationships. And then there are church environments that will kill them. What is that? Well, that's, that's what we find in, uh, in, in Colossians chapter 3. So um, just uh, before we look at it, let's... Let me look just for a second with you at the at the context of the of the passage. Let's let's put it in the context of Colossians. Paul's got a way he teaches. If you've read uh, some of the Pauline epistles, you notice that that what Paul typically does is he wants to help people with. Uh, some of the problems that they've got. He wants to encourage them to do certain things, to stop doing other things. But he realizes that before he gets to that, he needs to let them... It's always based on some information about God and about themselves and about their lives and about salvation. So Paul typically spends the first part of the letter in what we call positional truth. That is, uh, it's doctrine, it's theology, it's information about God that you need. What you need to know about God, about the, the sovereignty of God, sometimes somebody is, is hurting. You know, and you sit down with them and you think, well, the last thing they need at this point is theology. Uh, maybe not. Maybe that is what they need. Because when you're hurting, one of the best things that will help is if you understand the sovereignty of God. You understand that God really is in control. That things are not spinning out of control about you. That, that God loves you and he is in control of all that goes. Well, you know, Paul teaches these doctrines. And then about halfway through the book, there'll be a word that will appear. And the word is, therefore. So 
doctrine, 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 information about God, information about you, information about the, the, the Christian life. Therefore, because that is true, therefore, now he gets to the point about uh, what he wants them to know and what he wants them to do. Well, in this case, uh, you notice in chapter 3, what's the first word? Therefore. Now, there's three things in chapter 3. The first of all is he talks to them about their lives, some things he wants them to stop doing, some things they need to know as individuals living the Christian life in difficult situations. And so he tells them that. The next thing is information about getting along in church. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And the third thing, and by the way, this is really important to pass along this information so that we know how to get along with each other. Because what is this group? What is CCBC? You could describe us in a lot of ways, but a valid way to describe Christ's community is we're just a lot of sinners. That's what we are. And we will say things, we will offend each other. Hopefully not intentionally, but we still will do it. Somebody said, uh, uh, talking about the church, life above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. Life below with the saints we know. Well, that's another story, you know. And so that's why he wrote this section here in Colossians 3. So Colossians, the first part of the chapter is what you need to know about your own Christian life. The second part of the chapter is getting along with other believers. And then the third part is he goes into the home. He talks about husbands, wives, parents, children, etc. So we're going to be looking at uh, the second part. And actually, we're going to move back just a little bit and not start it at 12. Uh, let's, start it, uh, let's start it with verse 10, uh, just because I want to show you something in 11. Uh, he said, And it put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of one who have created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And he's describing the church. And notice he describes the church as like a bag of cats. He said, who's he says is in the church? He says the church is made up in verse 11, Greek and Jew. They don't get along. Circumcised and uncircumcised. They don't get along. He talks about slave and free, and he talks about people groups there. Barbarians said they don't get along. And he says that's what the church is like. But he has put all these groups together. But then the last part, but Christ, in the last, is all and in all. So. Next verse. So. Same word as therefore. So. Because this is true, because you are in a body with all kinds of different people, all kinds of different backgrounds, and bottom line is just a bunch of other sinners, you know. So, now, what does he, what does he say that we should do? 
He begins with, uh, again, he can't get away from it. He begins with just a little bit of positional truth, again, that is so important. And he says uh, in verse 12, uh, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put, you know. Now, the put begins with what he wants you to do. But before he gets to that, he says three things about you as a believer. And because this is true, this should make our interactions with it, with each other more important and easier to pull off. He says, number one, chosen of God. You know, you are the elect. And so the great thing is that God knows who we are. God has chosen us. And so... You know, I mean, Dope Jones is sitting back there, and, and Dope needs to realize, you know, that before God ever made the world, God knew who Dope was. The first creative act is God said, let there be light. But before he ever did that, amongst the Trinity, the Trinity who had been loving on each other and communicating uh, through eternity past, they chose us. And your name was written. You know, when God said, let there be light, the Lamb's book of life was already there. Your name was there. And he said, as those who have been chosen of God, holy, and you say, I don't feel very holy. Well, here's the good news and bad news. The bad news is that you're never going to get to heaven unless you're as holy as Jesus. That's, that's the entrance requirement. You'll never get to heaven unless you're as holy as Jesus. And the good news is that God knows that. And so he has taken off his holiness and he has put it on me. And the Bible says that at the cross this exchange took place so that God took all my sin and he put it on Christ and he died in my place. And then he took his righteousness, his holiness, and he gave it to me. Now, so that God sees me in that way. And now God says, back to this, what he's doing. Now God says, I already see you as holy. I have given you this. And now I want you to work it out in your daily life to live like who you are. That's who you are. Now, live like it. You are chosen. You're holy. And you're loved. God looked down through time. He knew me. He knew you. And he loves us. You know, this is a great thing. If you're, if you're meditating, go back and do this. And just, just look at look at Colossians 3.12. And you can just you can just stop right there. And so if this is if you're reading this, so as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Oh Lord, thank you so much. You chose me. I chose you, but it's because you'd already chosen me. You put your love on me. You knew my name before you ever made Adam. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you see me as holy. And you know that I don't live holy so often, but you see me as holy, and you have given that. That is a gift, not something that I have worked on. 
you have given me that. Thank you, Lord, that you see me as holy. And thank you, Lord, that, that you love me, that I am loved. Some days I don't feel loved. Some days I can't see how you could love me. But you do. How do I know you love me? It says it right here. You know your love, not because you feel love, not because you feel a Holy Ghost feeling coming over you. Now, it's not an emotion. It's a fact. Number one, I'm chosen. Number two, I'm positionally holy. And number three, Now, since that is true, let's, let's move on. Since that is true, he says, put on. He uses a clothing analogy here. And he says, these are some character qualities. And so what he's talking about is, is put on these qualities because here is an environment where you can grow these redemptive relationships amongst yourself. All of these things refer to life in a body. I mean, you know, compassion, kindness, and things like that, that does not work if you live on a desert island. He's talking about life in a body here. And so he says, um, uh, I want you to put on, back, back in verse 12, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Compassion is a heartfelt sympathy for the needs of other people. And again, just kind of go through it as you, as you look at this. Would you describe yourself, or even better, would your spouse describe you as a compassionate person? Do you care about other people's needs? Kindness is graciousness. It's the ability to listen. It's respect for other people's feelings. The Bible says that God is kind. In fact, Romans uh, 2 says that the kindness of God led us to repentance. God knows us. He is patient with us. He is kind toward us. He listens. God always listens. We don't listen so often. God always listens. If I was trying to talk to the president, there's no way I could ever get through. But I can talk with the God who spoke the universe into being. And all that's necessary is to say, Father, and I'm in the throne room. He is kind. Humility. Jesus attributed this to himself. He said, take my yoke upon me, uh, upon you and learn of me for I am gentle and humble in heart. The opposite of humility is pride, is arrogance. Humility is when you look out for the needs of other people before your own needs. When you care, when you actually notice and when you look out for them, look at what this means, not only in church, but in a, in a marriage relationship. 
when you care about other people's needs before your own needs. The last one is, uh, your Bible may say gentleness, meekness. It, what, it, it's, it's not weakness, but it's strength under control. It's strength that's disciplined and under control. I think the best example of that may be in the trial of the Lord Jesus as he was brought in to be tried before the Jews and then the Romans. And there was a crowd of people and the place was going crazy and people were, were hollering out insults. They were spitting at him, asking him questions. They said he's a king, so they took a crown of thorns and pushed it down on his head. So the thorns dug into his scalp and the blood trickled down his face and into his eyes. And then a soldier came up to him and just hit him as hard as he could and said, you're a prophet. Who was that that hit you? Can you tell me? And they charged him with all sorts of things. And they lied about him. And they made fun of him. Surely not the son of God. Look at him. He can't do anything about this. If he was God, he'd do something. And the Bible says he could have called 10,000 angels. But he didn't. Who was in control in that out-of-control room? Jesus. All power, all authority. All he had to do was just to think and they would have all just dropped dead. But he didn't. He was in control of everything, but it didn't look like he was and it was strength under control and he did that because he loved us so much. He knew he had to undergo what he was about to do. That's meekness and patience. And the patience is the ability to put up with negative circumstances and the aggravating behavior of other people without striking out. You know, you, ne you never develop patience unless you're in a situation where you have to develop it, where you have to use it. The with negative things, negative people, whatever, and being willing to put up with it without striking, without striking out. That's what patience is. That's what God is with me. Do you ever just stop to thank God for how patient he is? Why hasn't God struck you down? Why are you alive? We're not sure we want to be patient with other people. But we want God to be patient with us. He says be patient with, 
with others with and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against someone else. If we believe that, it would do away with social media in, uh, in, in a week. Because that's what social media is all about. Complaining about things and being angry about people and situations. And he says um, in, in verse 13 here, whoever has a complaint against anyone just, here's the standard, by the way. Now, how does this forgive thing work? How, how am I supposed to do it? At what point can I say this is enough? Notice the end of verse 13, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. When you go to God, does he ever say, you know, I have forgiven you so much, I'll forgive you just this one time and I'll stop to, you know, we say, I don't know whether they're sincere. I don't know whether if I forgive them, they'll just do it again. They'll just do it again. You know, I've already forgiven you for this a million times. And if I forgive you again, you'll just do it again. And if God said that to us, I'm going to forgive you of that age, but I can't, I can't forgive you because you'll just do it again. Notice the standard here at the end of verse 13. How do I know when I've done it right? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Here's the principle. Forgiven people should be forgiving people. Forgiven people should be forgiving people. Move on. Verse 14. But above all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity above all these things. This is, this is love, not like the world's standard of love because the world believes that love is something that happens to you. Love is an emotion. Love is something you feel like we think, use phrases like fall in love and things like that. I, you know, I, I don't love that. You mean, you mean I can just choose to love somebody? Can you love somebody you don't love? Is that, you know, if that's not possible, the Bible is very unfair when it commands us to love. You know, if this is something we can't do, you know, it has to kind of happen to us, then the Bible is very unfair to command us to do that. Notice that when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the first, what's the first fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is like when the Spirit is in control, what happens in your life? When the Spirit is in control, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first one. This is something that God does in your life. Paul talked about the filling of the Spirit. And the context that he put it in was drunkenness. He said, don't be drunk with wine, for that is uh, dissipation, that is excess. What does drunkenness do? Well, if you've ever known somebody who was really shy and got drunk, and all of a sudden, they're gregarious. You've known somebody who uh, was very timid and got drunk, 
and now they're very brave. Somebody who would never go up and talk to somebody until the drunkenness can change you. It changes what you're like. You know, somebody who, who never talks at all gets drunk and now you can't shut them up. Why? Because the alcohol changes you. It makes you do things you wouldn't normally do. It controls you so that you think you can do things that you didn't think you could do. And so Paul says, don't be controlled by alcohol, but be filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because in you, he will reproduce things that you couldn't do on your own. Paul said in Galatians 5, the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's your kids. That's your parents. That's your spouse. And again, giving a, uh, giving a standard. You know, like, like if he said you shall love your neighbor, that's one thing. That's hard. But he didn't just say you shall love your neighbor. He shall love your neighbor, and then he gives the standard for it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, just like you love yourself, you know? And if you were not sure who that is, Jesus clears that up in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is our neighbor? In John 14, Jesus said, this is my commandment. And if you wonder, what is, you know, he's about to go to the cross. And he's giving his guy some life's instructions. And he says, this is my commandment. What's he going to say? You know, it's sort of like the last words of somebody when he says, I'm about to leave you, and so I'm going to give you a commandment. This is my commandment. Here's what I want you to do. And everybody's sitting on the edge of their seat. And he finishes the sentence. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's how I want you to love them. I haven't just told you to love them. I've told you how to love them. He said, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. The word rule there is a sports term. And it means to arbitrate or to umpire. Umpire is a good translation of that. Let the peace of God, peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That this kind of, of peace that he wants to give us is not like the world gives us. Uh, because the world thinks of peace in terms of if, if, you, if you want peace, then you need to change the things around you that are causing you not to have peace. If you uh, ever go to the United Nations building, there is, it, despite the fact that this is basically a, a bunch of pagan countries, they have a quotation from Isaiah chiseled onto the wall at the United Nations. And the quotation is from Isaiah 2. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, 
neither shall they learn war anymore. And that's the way the world looks at peace. By the way, this is a prophecy which will be literally fulfilled. When King Jesus returns, I mean, this whole, there will be peace. Now, we can talk about peace right now, and we need to work toward peace and everything, but when King Jesus returns, and when he sets up his government out of Jerusalem, there will be peace, and they will beat their swords into plowshares. What would you need a sword for in his kingdom? Swords are for killing. They won't be killing. He will take care of that. And so the, the UN has picked up on that and says, you know, that peace would be absence of conflict anywhere. But that's not what he's talking about. Sooner, when he returns, he will ensure that kind of peace in the world. But right now he's talking about a different peace, and that's peace on the inside. And he says that even if there's war, and conflict outside. He says, I will give you a peace inside. I will give you a peace. Because we go to him and we say, Lord, change this and that. and Change that person in this situation. Lord, I'm just, I'm torn up on the inside and I'm worried and I've, I've got anxiety. If you change this, I wouldn't be anxious anymore. And he said, well, you got it half right. I do want to make some changes. But I want to change you. I want to change you. I want you to have peace, not because everything is peaceful around you. I want you to have peace because you've submitted to me. Again, speaking in that upper room that night, uh, speaking of what he leaves with them, he says, peace, I'll leave with you. In other words, life's will and testament. Peace I leave with you. I'm about to leave. What do I leave? I leave with you peace. Now, what is the rest of it? My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, because what would the world give? The world would say everything around you will treat you right. Everything around you will be smooth sailing. That's the world's peace. And he said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, I'm going to give you peace. It's not like the world's peace. Not at all. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, Paul says, Be anxious in nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. I love this next verse. And the peace of God, which passes all human comprehension. In other words, what I'm about to do in your life, you won't get it. If someone asks you to explain it, you won't have an explanation. The peace of God, which passes all human comprehension, will guard your heart and mind. How do you cause that to happen? Be anxious in nothing. And, and it begins by, by admitting, Lord, I've been anxious. Father, forgive me for my anxiety. Forgive me for my worry. Forgive me for my fear. And right now, he says, with thanksgiving, Lord, thank you for this situation. I wouldn't have chosen it, but you did, and you're in control. 
And Lord, I just ask you to give me your supernatural peace. Be anxious in nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all human comprehension will keep your hearts and mind. Notice it says, and be thankful in there. Thanking God is, is something, again, that we're commanded to do. And uh, so often we say, you know, if, if I were more thankful, I'd thank God. And God says, no, you guys just backwards. If you'd thank God, you'd be more thankful. How does that make sense? We say, if I felt thankful in this situation, then I'd be thanking God. And God said, no, if you would thank me, then you'd feel it. So if I feel it, I'll do it. And God says, no, if you do it, you'll feel it. And I can thank him. Paul said in Galatians, in 1 Thess 5, 18, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Next verse, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, richly, abundantly, overflowing. Let the word of Christ dwell within you. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. That's one of the things that the church does. We sing and we sing doctrine because that is one of the best ways to learn doctrine. Our, our church goes to great, I mean, uh, the pastor and, and Luke go to great lengths to make sure that the doctrine that we sing is the word of Christ that, that can richly dwell within us through song because song is one of the best ways to get that reinforced to learn something. You know, there was a... Uh, back when McDonald's first introduced the Big Mac, they had an advertising agency, and uh, they were going to introduce the, the new sandwich. And they told the agency, when you, when you do the ads... Uh, be sure that uh, be sure that it mentions the uh, ingredients of the Big Mac. Well, it drove them crazy. They said, "How can we, they want us to give a recipe in an ad?" And they worked on this thing for weeks, and and they finally said, "This can't be done." But here's what we can do. And McDonald's just insisted, "No, we want people to know what's in it." And so finally, one day, sitting around the table at Batten Burton. Durston and Osbert ad agency, one of the guys looked up and said, to all beef, patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun. And that became it. And everybody in America knew the ingredients of a Big Mac. I have no idea what's in anything else, but I know that a Big Mac is made up of two all beef patties, special sauce, Lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Because when you sing it, it becomes real. That's the reason we sing songs. Psalms out of literally the, the hymn book of the Christian church up until the last couple of hundred years was the book of Psalms. Hymns, it probably, we don't know exactly what Paul meant by these uh, uh, the terms he's using except for psalms. But hymns are probably songs of praise to God. 
And spiritual songs are songs about, you know, some of the songs you sing are addressed to God. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate, fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. That's a song you sing to him and it's a song of praise. But if you sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, The Saved a Wretch Like Me, that's a song of testimony. So some of the songs we sing are directed to God, and some of them are singing about what he has done in our lives. Last verse, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him the God, the Father. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? means in the name of, by the authority of. I can remember back when uh, old police movies, when the, when the cops used to be chasing the bad guy and they would say, stop in the name of the law. In other words, I'm not telling you to stop because of me or my authority, but I represent the law. It's in the name of the law. And he says, do this in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do, do it under the authority of Jesus. I don't know whether you watch Queen Elizabeth's uh, 70th anniversary or not. I love the way England's got this thing set up. Uh, Queen Elizabeth lives in unrivaled splendor. I mean, you know, she rides in golden chariot, uh, ca uh, golden carriages. Uh, she has a whole army at her disposal. Uh, there, the the jewels are literally she's wearing like millions of dollars. It is unbelievable regal splendor surrounding Queen Elizabeth. So what does she do? Not much. For all that. I mean, she makes a few speeches every year. She goes out and gives the royal wave to people. Uh, she is there as, as, a, um, as, as, as an inspiration of the country, and that's good. But Britain has a unique situation. They have a monarch, a regent, a queen in royal splendor who sits up there as the head of the government. And then just down the street in Parliament, they have another. They have a real government who makes all the decisions for England. What does she do? Nothing. You know? I mean, she does not make one decision for England. So we have a government on, a, a, a queen on the throne and a government to make the decisions. Some of us try to do that with Jesus, don't we? We acknowledge him as king. But then in our lives, we want to make all the decisions. Jesus said, again, in that same last uh, supper situation before he went to the cross, he said, if you love me, and there's a condition. You know, said, if you love me, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. This is the Lordship of Christ. 
all authority has been given to him. And he says, I want you to acknowledge that authority in your life. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it in the name under the authority of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And acknowledge that authority in your life. It's Right now, let's just, Lord, show us. Are there areas of our lives that we have that we have excluded you? We acknowledge you as king, but Lord, we've got a government over here so often that makes our own decisions. Lord, we don't want to do that. Lord, just show us right now. Your Holy Spirit can do that. Your Holy Spirit can point out areas in our lives where we need to acknowledge your authority and in our church need to acknowledge that he is the head of the church. And our, our goal is to seek his will and to do it and to treat each other like you've just said in this passage. And when we do that, we've set up a climate we know, Lord, for redemptive relationships to grow and to flourish. Lord, speak to us. I pray that if you've spoken to people here today, that, uh, that they would not leave without saying yes to you. We do love you. Thank you for meeting with us this morning, teaching us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.